This is A Diet of Brussels. In this episode, I'm talking with Michael Shackleton, uh, currently professor at the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands, formerly a a senior official in the European Parliament. We were talking uh, about uh, the perspective of the European institutions and the way the campaign is going uh, at the OASIS General Conference in Bilbao in Spain on the 9th of September 2015. For some thoughts and reflections, you can listen to episode 50. Um, Michael, uh, how do you see the situation in the UK at the moment in terms of the renegotiation, the referendum? Um, What strikes you as uh, particularly noteworthy? Well, I think we're entering an extraordinarily difficult phase. It's been something of a phony war up to now. But slowly we're coming to the moment where the renegotiation just doesn't have to be said to be taking place. It actually has to take place and some contents have to be put onto, into that renegotiation. We have to see what the British government would consider to be the points that they wish to gain satisfaction on up to now. In very general terms, things have been said about what the British government would like to have, but it's not been said in in any precise sense. It's one thing to say we want to reinforce the role of national parliaments. Well, in what way would you like to see them reinforced? And, of course, at that point, you will also start seeing what is the response of the other 27 member states. So it seems to me that... uh, Uh, the coming months will change the nature of the debate a good deal because uh, at the moment it's people rumblings off people saying you better not touch uh, anything to do with labor rights so on the left that said you know if you touch the social chapter you know don't bank on us to vote yes and on the right well uh, uh, there's in fact, many on the right would seem to me to be uh, not actually wanting to see, uh, couldn't imagine any renegotiation succeeding. Well, but it's hard for them to say that until the renegotiation has actually happened. So it seems to me it's, uh, you know, it's decision time quite close now. And do you think that will lead to something substantive in the, in the renegotiation? <laughs> it's extraordinarily hard actually to see what uh, a substantive form of uh, renegotiation would be Uh, because at one level you can say well take the example of national parliaments one could get some agreement that in some future uh, reform of the treaties because it's hard to see how this renegotiation will coincide with the reform of the treaties we will give some extra power to uh, national parliaments. Uh, but, uh, or, and we can say, we can say something about ever closer union, even though the European Council has already said people interpret the term ever closer union in different ways. Uh, so, for my money, it's, it's very, very hard to see what the content could be. Uh, I think the only serious way you could have a very significant change is one that I don't think the British government is prepared to contemplate that would be to change the very character of British membership it would be to say 
well, we can have something like an attached membership. You know, it's uh, not an idea of my own. It's uh, an Andrew Duff kind of idea that there could be a, a sort of um, semi-detached membership, which would, however, be something which would mean you would lose certain rights. And the problem is the British government wishes to retain all rights to be involved in all decision-making, um, but it doesn't want to be bound by all the consequences of that decision-making. And, and it's very hard to reconcile those two things. Uh, so, uh, for me, I am as at a loss as pretty well everybody else as to what the content of that renegotiation will be. Mm. One of the, the, the areas that you obviously have uh, a lot of uh, experience of and insight into is uh, are the institutions themselves mm. of the, the European Union. Uh, what's, the, what's the attitude that you see from them? Are they supportive? Are they confused? Are they, you know, are they, are they, how, are they facilitating the process or are they...? Well, as ever, you can't talk about the institutions as, as single blocks. They are made up of... Uh, a coalition of all kinds of differing uh, points of view. There is no question that there will be, within the institutions, people whose job it is to look as hard as possible for solutions to what is being asked for, once it's been asked for. Uh, so the Commission has set up a working group under a rather well-known British uh, direct, former Director General, Jonathan Fall, and I'm sure he will be working very hard to look for a solution. I am pretty sure that uh, in the European Council, Mr Tusk uh, and his people will be looking for a solution. Uh, but it's clear that uh, uh, amongst the wider uh, constituency, say in the Parliament that I know well, there are many, many people who are deeply, deeply uh, uh, unhappy about what is going on. And that's reflected, interestingly, in the desire of people in the Parliament to invite Cameron to come to the Parliament. Because, uh, and it will be very interesting, uh, I think it's highly unlikely that he would accept, but it's, uh, it's something where uh, actually one of the most interesting things I've seen in the Parliament recently was when Tsipras came to the European Parliament and faced some pretty tough questioning and dealt with it really rather well. Mm. Um, uh, somehow it doesn't seem to me to be part of the British psyche to sort of accept such a challenge, but I think it's a pity because it would be very interesting to see. However, it would also show that there were quite strong strands of opinion in the Parliament which uh, are deeply hostile, deeply hostile to anything uh, in which would constitute a major change. And that's, of course, Mr Cameron's major problem, because he is looking for something that can be presented as if it is a major change, uh, and it seems to me somebody's got to be disappointed, or possibly everybody will be disappointed. Is that, is that hostility that you talked about a, a product of frustration or is there there's something more than that so I mean, you know, given the, the the long and problematic uh, relationship is it just simply that patience has run out or is there, is there something else well I think it's partly born of the same sort of uncertainty uh, and uh, lack of clarity as to what's going on or what's being asked for that everybody else has got so there's a bit of that I think there's a strong sense that 
Hang on a minute, Britain already has quite a few opt-outs from uh, the Euro, from Schengen, from this, that and the other. And uh, what are you looking for in addition to that? And at the same time wishing to be central within the institution. So I think there's a bit of that. Uh, and uh, in the sort of on the federalist fringe, which is not insignificant in the European Parliament, there are people who just start saying, look, for the rest of the European Union to develop further, uh, we don't think that this is possible uh, with the United Kingdom uh, in, in its present relationship with, with the European Union. Now, this may be to exaggerate the desire of the other member states to advance. That's often an argument that actually, uh, you know, people hide a bit behind the, Euro the United Kingdom uh, as the place that where every that's blocking everything. Actually, if the United Kingdom wasn't there, I'm not sure it'd be so easy, for example, to get a financial transaction tax. Just because Britain is against it doesn't mean it would happen overnight so, uh, without uh, Britain being there. And at the same time, there's the, the, on the other wing, there are those people like uh, the former Finnish Prime Minister, former MEP uh, Alex Stubb, uh, who I knew when he was in the Parliament, who says, I cannot imagine the European Union without Britain. So uh, you've got these very divergent uh, opinions and people who, who rightly kind of sense an uncertainty about what the impact would be on the European Union as a whole if Britain wasn't in it. People might say they're a damn awkward partner to have around, but if they're not there... Mm, what effect will that have on, on, the, on the general balances inside the European Union? Uh, quite apart from kind of mm, creating the sense that a, for a major state to leave the European Union will have a psychological impact inside the institutions, which one should not underestimate. Uh, quite apart from the unfortunate effect it will have on the careers of British civil servants inside <laughs> the institutions. I'll, I'll ask you to, 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 to venture a, a guess on, mm. on how this referendum is going to, to pan out. And do you think what, what do you think the results likely to be, and, and will it matter? And is, is the referendum mm. going to solve anything? Well, it's always dangerous to ask people who want a particular result to prognosticate because they're likely to offer <laughs> prognostication that meets their wishes. I would say, however, that even a yes vote would, in my view, not resolve the issues um, because there is a deep difference between the way in which British, the British political class looks at the European Union from the way in which a majority of the political classes across Europe look at it. Uh, and this is kind of slightly concealed by the fact that there are major Eurosceptic groups, but you know, I, I think there's s such a difference that uh, I, I think there will be major problems ahead, I even if it's a yes vote. Uh, and we m might indeed return to this issue. Would, uh, one could have a bet on whether we'll, we would have a further referendum on the European Union sooner than a further referendum on Scottish independence. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think my opinion has, like perhaps a lot of other people, has changed with the passage of time over the last months. I mean, I think the, uh, the migration crisis which I would like to see as something that has generated 
a European public space, a European debate. There actually are people talking about it across frontiers, uh, and, and I think that on the whole is a good thing. But on the other hand, in terms of attitudes, it may, uh, in the United Kingdom, in a country where there's a large section of society which is very anxious about immigration, uh, this could serve uh, as a... has actually served, I think, in, in recent weeks to uh, strengthen the position of those opposed to membership, even if I could argue that doesn't make sense and not being in the European Union wouldn't suddenly uh, solve all of these problems. Uh, all it would mean would be that the, the French would no longer hold uh, all of the migrants in Calais. They would let them go on a boat to Dover. Uh, so uh, I think it's an extraordinarily difficult thing uh, to predict uh, and I think partly it's for a reason that was given at this conference by Justin Greening, uh, uh, Greenwood at the beginning, is that I am one of the few people around here who was there at the 1975 referendum. And I think it's really true that at that time there was such a much greater level of deference towards the political class, you know. Well, if he says it's right, well, okay, well, all right. I'll go for that then. If Harold says it's okay, we'll go for it. And if Edward says it's okay, we'll go for it. Uh, and the people who are saying a guinea are all these, you know, weirdos, women like Enoch Powell, you just don't have that level of deference and acceptance. So the question is, who do people look to to guide their, uh, their view? Uh, I don't think, you know, they looked to David Cameron. They don't look to... Jeremy Corbyn or whoever it is as leader of the Labour Party uh, they look elsewhere and uh, for me who's obviously on a sort of yes side of the equation I rather think it will be more important what people who are not in the political class say so it's more important what business people who are not part of the political class say or indeed people who are nothing to do with the direct activities of the European Union, whether it be so football managers like Arsene Wenger or people from the cultural field, not necessarily Eddie Izzard, who's a famous pro-European, but other people uh, that uh, somehow people will look to more readily than, um, than they did in 75, when, you know, it... it <laughs> Opinions changed, I think, partly because the politicians said, well, we got this deal. Fact of the matter, it wasn't much of a deal, but never mind. Uh, and uh, they accepted it. You can't rely on that now. And that's what makes it such a more difficult thing to predict. That, in a sense, the, the contents of any renegotiation are so much less important than the way in which it's played uh, and the, the way in which uh, people interpret that through the people that they that they not necessarily look up to because we're not in an era of deference but who are who are their points of reference for developing their own opinions and uh, uh, you know, it, it will make a difference what uh, you know what certain papers say I think you know it does make a, a difference and I'm not trying to give a, you know, the point of view that because the Daily Mail says it you know that everybody's going to vote no who reads the Daily Mail but uh, I think it will make quite a bit of difference what, say, papers like the, the Telegraph and the Times have to say. Uh, so uh, that was a very long-winded answer of saying, your case is as good as mine. Uh, I, however, do not think that somehow, you know, the Yes camp should, should give up now and say, well, it's clear we can never make this, you know. No, I think it's all to play for.